Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone, Dr. Mercola, helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by someone we haven't spoken with for a while, but he's clearly top in his field with respect to him being a neurologist who has put his focus and concentration on helping people with Alzheimer's disease, not only helping them, but helping prevent it, which is in my book. And I think in most of our books is really the key because it's so much easier to prevent something than it is to treat it. So, uh, and Dr. Bredesen has got a lot of updates for it, for us, because it's been a few years. I don't remember when, but it's at least four or five years since we text. Certainly pre-pandemic, for sure. Yep. Uh, that's, that's an interesting line in the sand. It's before or after the craziness. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think that's the last time I saw you, too. It was at a keto event, I think, or a low-carb Yeah, event. down in San Diego. Yeah, yeah that's right. And I, that was about four or five years ago. But we, we certainly talked before then, too. All right. Well, uh, why don't you give us an update of where you're at and what's new, the the new and the, the latest and the greatest? Absolutely. Thanks, Dr. McCullough. Great. So much great stuff going on. This is a great time for an update. So number one, there is, we've got a new trial that is starting. It's starting at six sites, uh, Hollywood, Florida, Nashville, Tennessee, uh, Cleveland, Ohio, uh, uh, Sacramento, California, Oakland, and San Francisco, uh, six absolutely fantastic uh, integrative physicians, Dr. Craig Tanio, uh, uh, Dr. Nate Bergman, Dr. David Hasse, uh, and uh, Dr. Kat Toops, Dr. Ann Hathaway, and Dr. Christine Burke. So really thrilled and honored to be working with them uh, to do this next trial. We've had a publication since you and I talked, Joe, uh, last time. We've had a publication of a very successful proof of concept trial. So now this trial will be uh, a randomized controlled trial at those six sites. And this, we will include biological aging and we will include brain aging and epigenetics. And we will include the new blood tests. So new exciting blood tests, Phosphotau 181, as you know, Phosphotau 217, uh, the A-beta 42 to 40 ratio. Uh, these were all just not available just a few years ago. Uh, GFAP and uh, neurofilament light. And a couple of these are not commercially available yet. So we're doing these as, of course, as research, but they will all become commercially available. And currently Phosphotau 181 is commercially available. And so is the A-beta 42 to 40 ratio. So now for the first time, you can get an idea without necessarily having a PET scan to look to see where do I stand. And more importantly, you can follow it as you improve. As you mentioned, prevention is key, but also reversing cognitive decline, which we were the first to do back in, published in 2014. We've seen it again and again and again. Uh, when you're doing the right things, when you're attacking the important drivers of the process, you see that. Uh, and yeah. then the next thing is uh, now. Well, before we go to the next thing, why don't we just sure, stop sure. on these? Because I yeah. am not familiar with those tests, but from their names, I suspect that they're related to the unfolded proteins that are observed to be increased when someone suffers from Alzheimer's. That would be uh, the tau proteins and beta amyloid, I would assume. So they are very much complementary. So they give you different information, which is very interesting. So, for example, GFAP is 
uh, not specific at all. It is just looking at brain changes that are associated with astrocytosis. So your astrocytes are responding in your brain to a problem, but it is the most sensitive. So you see this go up about 10 years before symptoms. So we should all ultimately know our GFAP and know, you know are we in do, doing well? What, now? What, is, what is that short for, GFAP? It's glial fibrillary acidic protein. Okay. So when your astrocytes that are supporting your neurons in your brain get in get uh, notified, hey, something's going wrong. It can be a car accident uh, or a bike accident. Uh, it can be uh, getting hit in the head by your surfboard, uh, or you know, or it can be uh, you know, it can be early Alzheimer's disease. The good news is, if it's normal, you're in pretty good shape, and so you want to know that going forward. And then. On the other side of things, the phosphotau-181 and soon phosphotau-217, these are quite specific for Alzheimer's changes, but they're not quite as early. So they're very helpful to know. And it's really telling you, you know, you and I talked before about this idea that when things are not good, you have a synaptoclastic response. You're pulling back on your synapses and you see the signals of that. And that's what the phosphotau is showing you. When things are good, you're now having a synaptoblastic response. You're making and storing new memories, and your phosphotau is going to go way low because phosphorylating the tau is what pops it off of the microtubules and allow, allows your neuronal processes to die back. So these are going to be very, very nice tests to have. And we've been checking this recently on everyone looking to see what their phosphotau 181 is. And as I say, soon the other ones will be available. So just a few questions on these proteins yeah. uh, to update and perhaps revise or inform people who aren't aware of it. But typically the thought in conventional medicine was that these proteins that are seen at increased levels in Alzheimer's are the cause yes. and not necessarily a artifact or a bystander, innocent bystander, somewhat like right. the firemen at a fire. You know, some people may think could believe because you don't, you only see firemen when there's a fire. So maybe they're causing the fire, right? So is, what is your view on uh, tau and beta amyloid as causal factors versus just correlated with the disease? Yeah, great point. And I completely agree. If this is a little bit like saying there's some smoke there. If we just blow away the smoke, then the house is not going to burn down. Right. It just makes no sense. So the key thing to know, though, is that it's not just that they are responses. They are also mediators. So the upstream response is what you get. And you've talked a lot about mitochondrial function, which is absolutely mm -hmm. critical in this disease. But we know of many now upstream contributors. And that's another update. People have not known what's causing this disease. And it's often said we don't know the cause and there's nothing that prevents reverses or delays. Nothing could be further from the truth. We know that there are many contributors. And of course, anything that damages mitochondria, part of that, different infections. What we now see from the research is that Alzheimer's disease fundamentally is a network insufficiency. You have this beautiful network of about 500 trillion synapses. And as you get exposed to inflammation, infections in your mouth, uh, insulin resistance, leaky gut, not enough blood flow, reduced oxygenation, reduced mitochondrial function, any of these things, what happens is that network is no longer sufficiently supported. And no surprise, it pulls back. And that's why you see the tau. But what happens when you see these and the why people have gone after these, they are part of the mediators 
of making this effect enhanced. So they amplify the problem. And, you know, Dr. Lee Hood and uh, Dr. Nathan Price uh, have just published a wonderful book uh, called The Age of Scientific Wellness. And as they point out, amyloid is an excellent biomarker. It's a terrible therapeutic target. And that's exactly what's coming out. As you know, the data, and you've spoken about this, things like lecanemab. Unfortunately, lecanemab was just recommended by the panel for FDA approval. Uh, but it, yeah, I know. <laughs> is that recent? Is that recent? Yeah, just last week. Yeah, last couple oh. of days ago, literally, they oh. recommended approval six to zero. Oh. It slowed the decline. Now, here's the thing that they didn't say, which they should have said. What are the things that performed better? This doesn't make you better. It doesn't keep you the same. It slows the decline by 27%. That's it. It slows the decline by 27%. So what worked better in their trials? Number one, ketones alone worked better than this drug. Number two, extra virgin olive oil alone in a trial worked better than this drug. Number three, what's called combined metabolic activators four different things that include some uh, some uh, some carnitine, some nicotinamide, riboside, things like that. Again, supporting energetics. This is about energetics and inflammation. Those are the two big players. Uh, and then, of more. course, the protocol we developed uh, worked the best of anything. And we've got people now uh, over 10 years who have sustained their improvement. So, yeah, I agree with you. It's sad that this drug has been recommended for approval. So why don't we highlight some of the... Uh biggest points in your protocol, because uh, that is what you're promoting. That's what you're teaching. And you've got a lot of clinicians who are uh, actually implementing this, pro this protocol at this time. So what would you what would you perceive as some of the biggest uh, points of the program in the protocol? Yeah, this is a great point. And we can talk about, you know, specific people and how much better they've gotten, et cetera. But there, yeah, so there are two, as I mentioned, two major players. It's supporting the energy and it's reducing the inflammation. You, you have an innate immune system that lives in three sites, your bone marrow, your endothelial cells, and your tissue macrophages, which in the brain are the microglia. So we wanna drop down that innate response, very much like what happens with COVID. And we also want to increase your energetics. And so the, to do that, we have two different pieces. The first piece is a core piece that everybody gets. The second piece are the specific. So this is a precision medicine approach. If you have a specific infection, then you've got to deal with that. And so many people have undiagnosed chronic infections. They may have, for example, P. gingivalis, which does work its way into your brain from the your oral microbiome or T. denticola. Herpes simplex is another common one. Uh, HHV6A is another common one. So the basics are diet, exercise, sleep, stress, brain training, detox, and some targeted supplements. Those are the basics. And you do, and you mentioned this before, what about things like katsu bands? And so uh, what we're finding is that those are helpful. And it, something that I find very helpful is EWOT, exercise with oxygen therapy. Most of these people are not getting appropriate energetic support to the far reaches of their brains. And so some people like to use HBOT. I like EWOT just because you're getting the blood flow as well. And you're getting and you're getting not such a non-physiological amount of oxygen. Uh, so I really, and we've had some tremendous results with people on this. So I really like that one. Uh, but getting people appropriate plant-rich, 
mildly ketogenic diet, and you've talked a lot about linoleic acid and its problems, you want that plant-rich, mildly ketogenic diet with a good omega-3 to omega-6 ratio, a good polyunsaturated fats, monounsaturated, uh, of course, and, and low unsaturated fats, of course. And no right. dairy, no, uh, you know, the usual, no, no dairy, no grains, uh, and no simple carbs. That's the approach that has worked the best. We call that KetoFlex 12.3, and I'm really appreciative. Nutrition for Longevity has now launched it, so it's really easy. People have said to me, oh, I can't get this. You can actually now get it from Nutrition for Longevity. Just go on KetoFlex, K-E-T-O-F-L-E-X, 123.com. You can get these direct to you. It's really easy. Uh, so there are a lot of a lot of things that are making it easier for better for people to get better outcomes. Then the specifics, as I mentioned, are typically chronic infections that are often undiagnosed. Sleep apnea, by the way, another common one that comes out in people. So many people, as you know, about eighty percent of sleep apnea goes undiagnosed. It unquestionably contributes to cognitive decline. You reduce your oxygenation, you reduce the energetics to your brain, you increase your adrenaline while you're sleeping, et cetera. Um, and then toxins. And the toxins have been inorganics, organics, and biotoxins. Everything from air pollution. And thankfully, it sounds like you guys are far enough south. You didn't get a problem with the Canadian fires. That no, were never did. You know, it's interesting. <clears throat> they, the can Canadian government actually had an order that the, the, that smoke could not go across the border. <laughs> they, they, it didn't it didn't have a COVID uh, infection. Uh, so that was stopped at the border, thankfully. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, this has been uh, very unfortunate. You know, we've had the uh, California fires in the past. And now, unfortunately, the East Coast is suffering with this air pollution. It's unquestionably a contributor to cognitive decline. And you mentioned COVID. And it was really interesting for me to see, uh, you probably saw in the Apple News feed, literally the last two days, almost identical to what you've been talking about in the last couple of years, where they're showing what's come from Wuhan, they're showing the furin cleavage site, they're showing the gain of function. Uh, all the things that people have been suspicious about are now coming out in this report, which I thought was really enlightening. Uh, all yeah, the stuff that's been denied. Yeah, we wrote about, I wrote a whole book on that. <laughs> Truth about yeah. COVID. But um, I, uh, since we last spoke, my thinking uh, has evolved quite a bit in my understanding of health and medicine. And it has evolved to the point where I come to disagree with your statements about polyunsaturated fats and saturated, <laughs> because I now believe, and, I, and so there's one, and then- I'd love to hear more. Oh yeah. So I don't believe there's such a good thing as a polyunsaturated fat. I mean, you could have some, you can go up to 2%. I think the biological optimum is probably about 1% even lower. I, I currently have, oh, this is omega-6, omega-6 now. Oh, omega yeah. Omega-3s yeah. is a different deal, yeah. uh, which I'm still seeking to get to the core of, but there, I'm unequivocally confident that omega-6 is, in fact, I'm in the process of, I'm in the third round of peer review now for a review paper on this to nutrients. Uh, just spent the last, four, the first four hours this morning writing a pretty, a 30, a three-hour rebuttal to one of the reviewers so i think it'll get, i think it'll get published but there the, i mean the, the studies that were done to support that omega-6 is an essential fat was were done by the birds it was a husband and wife team in the 30s and th there's been subsequent studies that disprove that because the 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 way they uh, implemented the study is they gave them no fat no fat yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, so. no fat is not a good approach. You need some, no. but when so it didn't cause it didn't cause it's some skin deficiencies. They were mice. The studies were mice, so it caused problems with their tails. But they they could easily be remediated with certain nutrients or even small amounts of omega three. So it's questionable at best that that omega six is if essential, and it, and it's all a moot point anyway because unless you're getting a a laboratory diet, it's literally physically impossible to eat food and not, and get, not get any omega six in virtually yeah. every food. There, I mean, there's, I mean, water, you know, even watermelon has omega six, so it's impossible. <laughs> it's impossible to not get it. So you're gonna you're gonna get it. I I personally get less than one percent omega six. Why? Because most of, the, I mean, the the the. the the shift it occurred like in the late 1800s, where they had the a technical ability to process seed oils industrially and make them in large quantities, and they're cheap as can be. They're a lot cheaper than using animal fats, which are full of important micronutrients, uh, vitamin A, vitamin K2, which are essential for health. Uh, so they're cheaper and they're being used, and the and the in the, the levels of this type of fatty acid in, in our tissue is increased by about 25 times, 2,000%. Wow. So, wow. yeah. And you, you, so, I mean, you do that on any nutrient and it's going to be potentially problematic, but with, with the yeah. omega six polyunsaturated, the PUF is other name for them is particularly problematic because you get embedded in the cell membranes or membranes and not just your cells, but also your mitochondrial cell membranes, specifically yeah. the mitochondrial membrane and cardiolipin which is a really important fat that's the only place it is in your body is in, in the mitochondria. Right. And, and it's in some of the complexes. So when you got this highly perishable fat, like that's literally a time bomb waiting to be, to be ignited by iron, you, you just set up this whole problem of lipid peroxides, yeah. uh, like 4-HNE and malandaldehyde and glyoxal, uh, and a whole variety of others that just destroys the surrounding tissue. So, you know, there's a lot of studies. I sent you a few links to some of them that really note a strong correlation. I don't know if there's any causal study has been published yeah. between, between because it's just hard to run. I mean, I one of the rebuttals I did in my review paper was, <laughs> he says, well, linoleic acid has to be good. 15% of it is in breast milk, so it's got to be safe. And that, so it took me a few hours to find it, but there was a study done in 1959 that, that literally in three days increased the little acid concentration of breast milk from 8% to 40% just by feeding them like pure soy oil and corn oil. Yeah, yeah. So it's what's in the breast milk isn't a sign of that, but this is the type of thinking that goes on in a lot of the, the scientists out there. Yeah. So, so anyway, let's address that because there's a lot of other ways. And ultimately, I couldn't agree more. It, boils down to getting those mitochondria turning up and being as efficient and making as much energy as possible. And uh, we got to talk about NAD and, and nicotinamide riboside because I think Absolutely. it's a good solution. But let's yeah. let's finish this one up with linoleic acid because I was so looking forward to discussing with this here. So let me ask you, where, where do you like to see the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio? Well, I think, it, you know, I, I, I'm not a big fan of the ratio. I think... PUFAs are problematic and you got to keep them low. So there is no amount of omega-3 that you can take to offset a 25% in, 
LA content in your tissues. It just isn't. You just have to get it down to low. So uh, adding additional omega-3s is going to make the problem worse because it's also perishable. It's actually more perishable than omega-6, but it's stored a little bit differently. So it's not as easily uh, oxidized. But I I, I think two to one, personally, that's what I'm doing, two to one. So I'll have like, I have like two, less than three grams of omega-6 per day in my whole diet. And I have about a gram and a half of omega-3. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, yes. And we typically look the same thing, anywhere from one, one to one to four to one. So two to one is perfect, right in the middle. The the um, the thing I worry about is when people are less than 0.5 to one, of course, it's associated with increased bleeding. That can be an issue for some people. And then where do you like to see, or do you like to look at the omega-3 index? I look, I don't know that you see need to see the index. I use chronometer. I'm sure you're familiar with that software. Yeah, that sure. I like chronometer, you. yeah. Yeah, so I just look at the ratio there, and it's pretty good, assuming your data entered is entered properly. So right. I mean, you can do it occasionally. I don't think it's a it's a huge, but you know, I mean, the, when I I've got I was a little confused in that, and I've had my omega three index up to like twelve, you know, or yeah. higher. But now I think probably, you know, mid single digits is probably fine. Yeah, yeah, we shoot for people to get to right around ten percent or so. So yeah, yeah. we're right in the same same ballpark there. Uh, and I think this, you know, this is what people are seeing is is good for inflammation and minimizing that. Uh, good for. But, but you've got to be careful on your omega threes. I've done some articles on this because the bulk of them, the majority of the omega three supplements out there are just worthless. They're actually worse than yeah. worthless yeah. because they're synthetic. They're they're uh, ethyl esters. They're not the triglyceride form. So yeah. you, and then you know, so they're most of them are pretty clean because of the extraction process, but it contributes to the problem because it just they're not natural ones, and they may be better than nothing, but I think they may, in some cases, it might be worse. Yeah, got to get the real deal, you know, like the uh, pure, yeah. high quality cod liver oil or something, you know, and, and certainly something that hasn't been, you know, low, low in uh, heavy metals and also uh, the natural, not the synthetic form. Yeah, absolutely. And along those lines, do you like uh, resolvents as well? Oh yeah, resolvents and protectants. But you don't go. You're not going to get those in most visceral supplements at all. Yeah, exactly. You got you to get them from natural sources like cod liver oil or or seafood. They're yeah. seafood. Yeah, resolvents and protectants are great. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So, so th- those are the sorts of things that we you know we address um, exercises. We talked about with EWAT. Uh, sleep, of course, is a huge area in and of itself. And, and and so many people are doing themselves a disservice. The patient zero, the f- first person that we treated back in 2012 who reversed her cognitive decline beautifully. I just talked to her on, on the phone a couple of days ago. Um, she's, you know, she's now over a decade on this, uh, doing great. Uh, continually, she's now uh, in her late 70s. Uh, and um, one of her issues was poor sleep. Um, and of course, one of the things that was addressed and again, as I said earlier, getting the appropriate oxygenation during sleep, getting at least an hour of, sl- of uh, deep sleep and at least an hour and a half of REM sleep, very helpful. And of course, Matthew Walker wrote a whole book about why we sleep, really excellent information, and they continue to do first-rate research in this area. Uh, and then, of course, stress, do, you know. Do you, do you what, on sleep, what is your observation in elderly individuals? Do you find that typically this deep sleep tends to de- decline quite dramatically? It, yes, it can. And the problem, of course, is that 
Poor sleep gives you more amyloid. Again, it's just a marker, but it's a marker of things that aren't aren't so good. And unfortunately, amyloid then gives you poorer sleep. So unfortunately, you just kind of go down. Cycle. Yeah. And unfortunately, yeah. And, and you know, uh, poor deep sleep is often associated with too much adrenergic tone. Um, so you know, common things down. Uh, actually, I just you have a, a nice uh, uh, you have a nice sleep pill. Uh, with some melatonin in it and several other nice things, which I just took a few nights ago. Very helpful. So thanks for putting that together. Uh, And um, I think all of us can do better with our sleep. Again, I think all of us can do better with our cognition. You know, so many people say, look, I don't have Alzheimer's yet. Well, okay. But if you're 40 or over, please get a cognoscopy. Please get checked to make sure you can do some basic, you can do blood tests, you can do some simple online screening. Look, if you already have symptoms, get an MRI with volumetrics. But if you're there for prevention, you don't need that. There's so much that people can do to have a better cognition on a day-to-day basis. Well, I want want to finish up the testing person. I definitely want to come back to the linoleic acid because I still don't understand your your position on it. But for the testing, you know, you had those new exciting tests about the uh, unfolded proteins. Uh, that it sounded like that was commercially available, but I'm wondering what the pricing on that is. And then a follow-up question to that would be that you so accurately identified that these stealth infections that people have could be huge issues. And if their viruses are somewhat problematic, but there's, there's certain ways you can approach it. So what type of testing panel do you use to screen for those? Yeah, great point. And so, yes. So, so the point of the, uh, the ones that are commercially available, you mentioned that the ones that are uh, unfolded protein related. So PTAL-181 is commercially available. Uh, and that's, and, not, that's not an unfolded protein? Uh, well, PTAL-181, there, there, is a, there is a fold of this, yes, uh, but the PTAL itself is you're, you're basically phosphorylating the tau, which pops it off the microtubules so that you now are declining. So it's part of signaling, but you're absolutely right. It also is can give it gives you prions. So these things become prionic because they are unfortunately part of the amplification of the signal for pulling back. So that one's commercially available. And then also the 42 to 40 ratio is commercially What's available. A, are these like a thousand dollars a test or what? Okay, so, so yeah, great point. So the PTAL one is a couple hundred bucks. That's not so bad. The 42 to 40 is, is, is several hundred from Quest, but is is right, is over a thousand from uh, the one called Precivity. Um, and the reason Precivity has essentially shown that there is a relation between what you'll get on your amyloid PET scan and what you'll get from their blood test. And they include your age and they include your, your APOE4 ratio, APOE4 status. Do you have no copies, single copy, double copy? Um, that's a critical, critical piece. People, everybody should know their APOE status. So that's absolutely part of the genetic part of the blood tests. Uh, and then, so they, so you're right. I, and to be fair, I think they priced it, you know, too high. It's something like twelve hundred bucks. And their argument is, well, it's less than a PET scan. Well, yeah, but there are multiple other blood tests that you can get now, so that you don't necessarily need to do that. Uh, that's so that's critical. It's critical to know all the usual hormones, all the usual toxins. We like to look at, you know, we like to look at the urinary mycotoxins. Um, we'll also look at at the uh, GPL, typically the organic toxins, as you know. Um, and then, of course, you want to know your metals and you want to know your exposure uh, to uh, to air pollution. These are all critical to understand. You you know you want to get a look ultimately at this amazing network that is supporting your synaptic network. 
And you need to understand this. If you've got problems with biotoxins, they are basically reducing your network size. They're reducing your synaptic network. So we look at all those. And now, of course, epigenetics. And there's a group called True Diagnostic working mm -hmm. with multiple universities. They've done a great job. So they, they're doing epigenetics for the test, our upcoming clinical trial. Uh, they're looking at brain aging. They're looking at biological age. They're looking at all sorts of things. And they'll get more and more associations as time goes on. So I think that that's going to ultimately be the way for us to diagnose other neurodegenerative diseases early on so that we can get some really uh, exciting improvements. So what is the panel used to screen for those viruses though? Is there a, is like a specific panel that has them all or you have, to, you have to know what they are individually and just click them off? Yeah, so the, so there are the, the panels we use. Are, so there's one that for all the herpes family members, and those are the ones most associated, as you know, with neuronal and with brain changes. So you're going to get you know HSV one, HSV two, HHV six. Now there's not a good HHV six A versus B yet. That is coming, and that will be very helpful because it's HHV six A that is less common but more associated with brain degeneration of Alzheimer's, whereas HHV6B, very common, most of us have it, and most of us are not gonna have a problem with it during our lifetimes. And then of course, EBV, and I, I know you, you're aware of the recent EBV association with multiple sclerosis. Uh, the question now is, you know, how does that work? You take a thousand people at random, 940 of them will be positive for EBV, but only one of them will develop MS. So it seems to be very important, but it is not sufficient. So it's necessary, but not sufficient to give you MS. There is a very interesting cross-reaction between a molecule in the brain called GlielCam and the EBNA1 antigen. So there's a cross-reaction between those two that is driving multiple sclerosis. So again, better and better blood tests coming up for all of these things. And then you mentioned the infections. Yes, you also want to look at chlamydia pneumoniae, uh, which is another one that's critical. You also want to look at all of the tick-borne infections. And I can't tell you how many times we find out that someone has an undiagnosed, whether it's Borrelia, Bartonella, Babesia, uh, Anaplasma, uh, any of these things that are all critical uh, for, again, for driving the innate immune system very much, you mentioned COVID earlier, very much like that. The difference is, of course, COVID does it quickly uh, and Alzheimer's does it slowly, uh, but they are both innate immune system mismatches with the adaptive system. You're not clearing the pathogen, so you've got this continued. In one case, you die from cytokine storm, as you've indicated before. In the case of Alzheimer's, you die from cytokine drizzle. It's a long-term cytokine problem. So, uh, so those are, you know, those are critical tests. Um, and then again, we, as I mentioned, inorganic, organic, and biotoxins are all important to test for. You know, uh, Richard Horowitz, I'm sure you know, the, the international expert on Lyme disease has had some very good results using Dapsone uh, mm -hmm. for treatment of these chronic infections and showing improvements uh, in cognition. And there was a very interesting study using Dapsone for people that have leprosy, which is, as you know, where it's commonly used. The people that got Dapsone 
did much better in terms of their long-term cognition than the people who were treated but did not get Dapsone. So this has an anti-inflammatory effect as well as an antimicrobial effect and looks like a very good candidate for the future. Yeah, stealth infections are clearly an issue. So let's route back to the linoleic acid because in my view, it may not be correct, but my current belief system it may be the biggest source of all of these uh, elements you just mentioned in, with respect to driving the the process of increasing inflammation, oxidative stress, of damaging the mitochondrial yeah. proteins, the electron transport chain. So you cannot produce ATP efficiently because if you've essentially stacked it with tinder and you've ignited it and it's burned up because you've got high iron levels, you know, it's just... It, it's just a prescription for disaster. So I'm wondering how, if you've looked at the literature, if you've assessed it, if it's an area you're integrating into your protocol or what your, what's your current uh, view on that? Yeah, great point. And we should also talk basically very much related to what you just said. We should also talk about fructose and we should also talk about methylene blue. You mentioned the methylene blue in your email mm. to me. Oh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of methylene blue. We could, I, we could definitely yeah. dive deep on that. That's the yeah. oldest drug in the modern yeah. world. Yeah, I literally preceded aspirin by about almost twenty-five years. Interesting, interesting. So as far as the as far as the uh, omega six and linoleic acid, mm-hmm. uh, I agree with you. Uh, th- this is something that can be a problem. It is pro-inflammatory. This is why we again we're trying to target the network to be most functional, and part of that is we like to see the omega three index somewhere. 10% or so, and we'd like to see the six to three ratio being one to one up to four to one, but no higher. And as you know, the American on average is about 15 to one or so because we tend to get so much of that omega-6. I think people are beginning to come around and realize that this is not such a good thing after all. Uh, so well, I do- this, The simple solution without having to spend a long time counseling people, it's just the number one rule is no processed foods. That's where it's all at. It's all in the processed foods, which is a a challenge because it means you've got to make your own foods, but, but it will solve it. And, you know, that includes restaurants because a lot of people confuse, Oh, if I go to a restaurant, then all bets are off because it's a restaurant. I don't have to worry about it. No, this is just as bad, if not worse. Yeah. Yeah. So now do you, now do you tell your patients, okay, uh, you know, you can go to a restaurant once a month, once a year. Do you have a do you have a threshold, or do it you depends. just? Tell them, no, I, no, I have no threshold. It's individual. You know, if, if I had my yeah. druthers, you know, I basically avoid them like a plague. I, yeah. Or bring my own food. Or there's there are foods that you can eat there, like most beef, even if it's commercially grown and loaded with Roundup and you know, hafo uh, beef uh, and fed grains their whole life. It's still going to be relatively low in linoleic acid. So you, that's a safe one. A lot of seafood is, if unless it was farmed. Uh, vegetables, white rice. I mean, there are things you can eat there that won't be a problem. But but any salad dressing, any any uh, any sauce, it, it, they're they're all made with with seed oils. Seed so oil. you yeah. just got to be careful. And the the, the the caution or the recommendation I make to friends if I go out with them occasionally, and I, I'm typically either I bring my own food or I don't eat at a restaurant. Wow. I I, I, I tell the server that listen. I show my phone. I say, I've got 9-11 on speed out here. My friend, <laughs> my friend is deathly allergic to seed oils. If he gets any word that you do not want the ambulance here because he, he's it's a bad thing. You just cannot. Yeah. So you got to go back there and talk to the 
the chef or the cook that he can't even see it. It has to be butter. It has to be butter. Yeah. So that there, you know, if it, it takes a little extra effort, but you can usually get it because they're not going to put butter in, or if you're, if you're having breakfast in a buffet, right? They're making or scramble or making an omelet for you. Well, I guarantee you, unless you go, they're not going to be using butter to make your omelet. They're going to be using canola oil or whatever, some seed yeah. oil. So you can just tell them these butter and look at it and make sure they're using it. You know, so there are things you can do, but you've got to pay attention to details, I think. Yeah, that's such a good point. So I wanted to talk a little bit about fructose because um, the work of Rick Johnson, and I'm, 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 I suspect you probably talked to Rick. Oh, Professor Rick's been in my house before. Oh, fantastic. Good. Yeah. yeah. So he's a professor at University of Colorado, uh, just published a wonderful paper about two months ago. And actually, Dave Perlmutter and I are both are both co-authors on that paper. But it's really the it's really the long term research uh, of Rick Johnson and, and what he's shown beautifully. You talked about the mitochondrial function. You know, you're talking about a damage to mitochondria. He's talking about a change in signals. So they're both important. So mm-hmm. as he points out, when you get that fructose, your body is literally responding to it saying winter is coming. We are going to store fat and we're going to turn down your ATP by about 15%. Well, when you're right on the ragged edge of getting enough energetics, then turning down your ATP by 15% is the last thing you want and is associated with cognitive decline. And I thought one of the things that was really striking, Rick put together a whole table looking at all the, the relationships, changes in PET scans, changes in blood biomarkers. In each of these cases, what happens with fructose is the same thing that what happens in Alzheimer's disease. So again, it comes back to the critical nature of the energetics, whether you're turning them down by taking too much fructose and high fructose corn syrup, uh, which is not to say, you know, you can't eat some fruit. It just means you don't want to have massive well, amounts of fructose. I was going to bring that up because I actually should get Rick back on and have a discussion with him because my views yes. have changed quite dramatically. There's a dr- world difference between fruit and high fructose corn syrup. Absolutely. Uh, because fruit or fructose in the form of a fruit, and I, just to let you know, I, I'm not low carb anymore. In fact, I eat about 500 grams of carbohydrates, mostly mm. fruit, mostly ripe fruit. So fructose from fruit actually activates pyruvate dehydrogenase, which, as you know, is the you have to have that enzyme be active if you if you ever hope to have glucose metabolized and broken down to pyruvate and have that pyruvate metabolize further to uh, acetyl-CoA so it goes into the mitochondria to be burned as efficiently as fuel. Yeah. If you don't activate that, if it's shut down, you've got a problem and, the, and it goes down and you get the Warburg effect, you get production right. of lactic acid and it, the glucose seeps out because there's just too much of it. It's not being used. So the, 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 the other point of contention I have on it, because I've studied this, I know Rick's big into in hibernation and torpor. Right. But my understanding now is that really what causes that is the polyunsaturated fats. That's what causes torpor. And th- that in, in addition to some of the information that can happen when you have fructose from high fructose corn syrup, because it may be metabolized in a way that there's still there some filtered long chain starches that aren't broken down in your upper intestinal tract. They can make it to your intestine. As you know, we've got 10 to one bacteria more than uh, we have cells in our body, and, and that if there, if you have a higher percentage of gram negatives, that those are going to multiply and die eventually. And the gram negative, the gram negatives have the endotoxin cell wall, which right. you know contributes to increased serotonin and inflammation, leaky gut, potentially sepsis. Yeah. You know, it's a it's a mess. So yeah. you know that's why you have to 
differentiate between high fructose corn syrup or processed foods right. and real food from fruit. It's even, I remember the last conversation I had with Rick, he was not opposed. In fact, he was somewhat surprised, I think would, would be my memory of it, that fructose from fruit didn't seem to cause this. Yes. And it makes perfect sense. Well, look, the interesting thing to me is, you know, we are frugivore. We descended from frugivores. Um, so if you look at all the things, yeah, that was the thing that was driving uh, the, 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 the simians that we descended from. The problem we have today, of course, is that our fruit has been bred to have a much higher sugar content. That's the one issue. But the good news is, of course, it retains the wonderful fiber. And as you pointed out, it doesn't give you that effect that high fructose corn syrup and processed foods does give you. Yeah. And the other issue, though, you know, again, are you familiar with the Randall Randall uh, cycle? The Randall, the Randall cycle. No, tell me yeah. about the Randall cycle. Okay, the Randall cycle is is kind of, it's a metabolic switch, and it essentially it's just like a switch on a railroad track. So that when you've got the fuel coming down, you got fat and carbs; those are your only fuel that sure. you can you can burn protein, but no, you know that's yeah. beyond foolish to do that. So it's either fat or carbs, and how is your cell going to decide which one to burn? Well. It's the Randall cycle, and there's a threshold of, of, of fat, and it depends on how metabolically you're healthy are, but it's about 30 to 35% is a cutoff point. So if you have more than that as fat, that switch kind of shifts it over to fat metabolism so that yep. you're burning fat in your mitochondria rather than the, the, the glucose, and the glucose gets shuttled down in glycolysis, and then you know the excess goes out into your blood. So if you have a lot of fruit and you're having a lot of fat, that's, that's not a good idea because then you will, that can lead to diabetes too. Right. Uh, so you've got to be careful with that, that throttle switch and you make sure that, you know, if you're obese or you're diabetic, that, that threshold, that Randall cycle might go down to 15, 20%, not 30%. So you, so to keep your mitochondria open, so they that to the glucose that can come in, because then when you, and then there's other thing called, uh, I don't know if we have time to go into it, but it's called reductive stress. Which have you heard of that term before? Reductive stress. Reductive, no. not oxidative stress. It's actually what causes oxidative oh, stress. So essentially the opposite of oxidative stress. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, where does it happen? It happens in the mitochondria when you have a backward flow of electrons from the complexes. So and shockingly, the this is this is at a foundational level, what the heck's going wrong with the polyunsaturated fats? Because you've got the polys, the linoleic acid embedded in the intermitochondrial membrane and the cardiolipin and the complexes. And if, if they're damaged, it shuts down those complexes and you get the backward uh, electron flow through the complexes, electron transport chain. And normally, if it's going forward like it's supposed to in an ideal yeah. word, and op- if you're optimally healthy, the amount of reactive oxygen a species that's generated, which we all know is the big thing, 0.1%, 90.9% efficient. Yeah, incredible. Hardly any of us do that because we're full of that linoleic acid. So you get this reverse electron flow, which uh, talk that that's why methylene blue is so helpful because it can help stop that. But if you go the flow, you go forward as 0.1%. If you go the other way with reduct, react, uh, reductive stress, it's three to 4% 30 reactive oxygen species, 30 to 40 times more reactive oxygen species just by backing it up, which is what we've done with the modern diet. You know, we just loaded the, the mitochondria with linoleic acid, just, you know, just making it a recipe for disaster and, and it radically increasing the reactive. And, the, and you get into this, this cycling effect because you get 
more oxidative damage, you damage more than like acid in the mitochondrial membrane, it just gets worse and worse and worse. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, and so obviously you have a big interest in methylene blue. Uh, oh, I think it's, oh man, I can, that is that is a profoundly serious understatement. <laughs> interesting. And do you like it for Parkinson's or do you like it for Alzheimer's? Or I, I just like it for anyone who wants to improve their health and reverse chronic disease because it, it, it fundamentally is one of the key things to, to helping reduce reductive stress. Methylene blue will bypass, will allow you to, will facilitate electron transfer forward in the right. mitochondria, even though the, the complexes are damaged. Because, you know, and the other thing is NAD, which I'm a big, dis I, I don't like the, the typical precursors. I think they took NMN off the market because uh, David Sinclair's company made, I think it's Metris or something, made, made a drug-like and had the FDA. I think it's it's pulled off, as far as I know. So the only one left is really nicotinamide riboside or NR. Yeah. But but do you know what the best way to increase niacinamide is? I mean, or I said it, increasing not NAD. NAD. No. So what's the what is the way you like the best? Well, this is pretty. It's not just me. I'm, I've, I've written. I'm in the process of writing a bunch of articles on it, and uh, the studies are really profound. It's simple, and it and it, you can buy like a year's worth for a month's worth is under a dollar essentially. Wow. Instead of nicotinamide riboside, which is over hundred, so it's niacinamide, simple vitamin B three, not niacin, but niacinamide, taken in very tiny doses, like fifty milligrams, because more will work. Uh, I used to think it was a problem because it inhibited the sirtuins and the sirtuins, as you know, David Sinclair promoted them as these massive longevity proteins that are so important to your health. But it turns out they're not, I don't, they're not what he's stacked them up to be and they could be problematic. So high doses of niacin impairing the sirtuins might actually be a good thing. But but, but regardless, you just need niacinamide about 50 milligrams three times a day. Now it only comes as a 500 milligram tablet commercially. We're in the process of making a 50 that should be out pretty soon. Um, nice. So, but it's still cheap as can be, and it will increase your NAD levels. And it, it, and NAD plus is oxidized, right? So it's not reduced. Right, so it allows and facilitates the transfer of electrons forward in the electron transfer chain. And methylene blue is also an oxidant. So it would, so there's two ways. NAD actually makes more, any niacinamide actually fuels NAMPT, which is the rate limited enzyme for NAD plus. Mm -hmm. And so you're making more endogenous NAD plus, but you know, once it's reduced, it goes to NADH sure. and when you have methylene blue it not, it goes in there and it oxidizes the NADH and turns that to NAD plus. So that NAD plus to NAD ratio is like, that is the redox fuel or not fuel, but meter yeah. signal yeah. for your body. Cause then there's a lot of others like, lactate to pyruvate and others, but you want to get that NAD plus up so much. And it's not for longevity proteins. It's for making your elect, the, the complexes in your mitochondria work the way they were designed to, the way they figured it out in 19, in the early 1900s. You know, I mean, we all knew, we all learned, everyone who takes biochemistry learns about NAD plus, but they just sure. don't understand how critical this thing is and how important it is to take a supplement like, so I, do I think it's for all the neurodegenerative you mentioned? Absolutely. For anyone else, cardiovascular disease, cancer. Uh, yeah. dementia, diabetes, obesity. Yeah. 
All right. Now, related, one of the other things we see in these patients very commonly, the ones that are that have been exposed to mycotoxins or other toxins, is low glutathione levels. So, mm-hmm. what do you like? Uh, what do you use your favorite ap- approach in terms of? Well, uh, I mean, if you're going to, you're going to I, I'm not a big fan of taking glutathione. I know people okay. use it IV or sublingually, or or take it in a way like liposomal glutathione could also work. Uh, if you're going, if you're, and certainly some people benefit from increased levels. There's no question, but glutathione yeah. is reduced, is reduced, is reduced, you know? Yeah. And I think my understanding is you need the oxidized form to really make it work. So if you've got a lot of methylene blue on that could oxidize it back, but to make the actual molecule, you need cysteine is, is typically an important and glycine. Yeah. So cysteine, you could take as NAC and glycine. Oh my gosh. The research on that. I mean, you're probably aware of it. It's just crazy. It's so good. But it turns out there's a better way than getting a synthetic amino acid glycine than taking glycine. You know what that would be? But, uh, nose to tail? <laughs> nose to tail would be the ultimate, yes. Yeah. Hard to do, almost no one's going to do it. So the other way is you can take what you would get in nose to tail, that, not including the muscle meat, which would be the connective tissue, right. which is about 30 you know, one third to one half of our protein in our body is collagen from connective tissue. So if you eat collagen or gelatin, you can get that connective tissue and you don't have to eat nose to tail, but that's, but, but that's about 30% of collagen or gelatin is glycine. Right. Plus it has other amino acids that are low that you don't need like methionine and cysteine, uh, cysteine, uh, tryptophan, you know, that are problems when you get in large amounts. You know, I know t- some people say tryptophan, isn't it the precursor for serotonin? Well, serotonin is a big problem. Is a lot, you know, it's a happy, happy neurotransmitter, but you know, there's a lot of research on that. It causes, it causes a lot of problems like fibrosis and inflammation, uh, impairs metabolism, you know, shuts down your metabolism. So in large quantities, it's and you make it in your gut. Most of it's in your gut, although it does transfer up to your brain. Uh, but it's it's one of the problems that happen when you get exposed to a lot of these resistant starches that you eat and don't get digested and then fuel up in the in the gut and yeah. and then you get that di- in the bacteria converted. You know. And then two final things on the methylene blue you were talking about. Number one, uh, LMTM versus the methylene blue itself. Yes, uh, I know there there are issues there, and then number two, the dosage you like. Um, you looking at you know eight to ten? Uh, what yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's you like? Excellent questions. LMTM for those who are familiar with that's the reduced form of methylene blue. It's it's actually clear. That's what happens with methylene blue because it is a dye. Uh, yeah. If it's blue, it's oxidized and it, it will stain. If you if you're playing with this, it's it. I mean, just the tiniest speck will stain your counter, guaranteed. Yeah. So if you're going to you play with this, you do it in the sink, a stainless steel sink. Yeah. But I don't, I don't, and I don't, I know the trials with the dementia were done with the reduced form, and I, I don't think they got great results because at least the one trial I sent you was they used an eight to ten milligram and a, right. a one fifty to two fifty, yeah, and there was no difference, which mm-hmm. suggests that the eight to ten milligram is all you need. You know, for some people, they might need a little more, maybe as high as 50, but 100 to 250 milligrams is way over the top. And, it, and about somewhere between 30 and 50 milligrams, your urine will turn blue. And yeah. some people suggest that the lower 
dose, the lowest dose that your urine turns blue is the better, the more, the healthier you are essentially, because you don't need that to go in, the, the methylene blue to go in and reduce things that, uh, or oxidize things that are reduced. And you know, one of the things that I learned about this too, is that with the reductive stress, I'm, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with grounding, right? Sure. Yeah, of course. So I was always, always confused on why grounding worked. You know, because typically you're thinking, okay, like if you shuffle your feet on a rug, you got you build up these electrons in your body, and then you touch a door handle, and the spark, you know, you're discharging those electrons. I said, right. I, I didn't think how that worked. I thought it was supposed to reduce oxidative stress. Well, it does, and that's exactly what it does. Because usually the problem is you have too many electrons, and that's what our food is. You know, our food is a source of electrons, right? Carbs and and it passes those electrons through, passes them ultimately to oxygen, making. Uh, metabolic water and carbon dioxide, but it's electrons, which are reduc- reductants. Redox. Yeah. Redox chemistry. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so key and it's pretty basic chemistry. It sounds confusing, but you know, it really isn't when you, when you uh, study it, but yeah. So the, the grounding works too. And grounding can help make the mitochondria work better. Cause I never knew how it worked, but it makes the mitochondria work because it reduces reductive stress. It discharges those electrons into the into the earth because it's grounded right absolutely very interesting very yeah. interesting so yeah i think the dose is about 10 milligrams for most people it seems you know our environment today to me to me that's the two it's just almost i mean they're so cheap i mean both of those integrating those both together would cost a dollar or two dollars a month there's virtually very few people who couldn't afford that you know yeah. it's like universally available affordable and like almost no side effects. I mean, one side effect, methane blue, potentially if you took a higher dose, it's it's an MA, uh, M- monoamine oxidase A inhibitor. So it could potentially, that's the enzyme that's used to degrade serotonin. So yeah. if you were on an uh, SSRI and had high serotonin levels, it couldn't raise your serotonin levels and get serotonin syndrome, which would not be good. So yeah. if you're on SSRI, potentially a problem. Although I've I've seen many people on taking SSRIs at small doses, it seems to work, even as high as 50 milligrams a day without any problems, but it's still potentially an issue. Absolutely. So let me mention one other thing, because a com- common thing is, you know, so-and-so in my family has a problem with neurodegeneration. What do I do? Mm-hmm. Now, there hasn't been any institute in the country or in the world. Until where- yours. So we're just so we're going to be yeah so we're just starting and very excited about this should be opening later this year or early next year. Um, this is at Pacific Neuroscience Institute. This will be the precision. Where is that? Where is that? Program. That's in Santa Monica, California. Okay. So uh, right there in Western LA, uh, and uh, this will be a site, and we're doing this with Dr. David Merrill, uh, Dr. Dan Kelly, the whole the whole group at PNI, and the idea is to open this as a first place for a precision medicine program. So for people who have dry macular degeneration for people who have PSP, CBD, Lewy body disease, uh, Alzheimer's, et cetera. Again, as you said earlier, we encourage everyone, please come in for prevention or mm. treatment. Uh, as you know, when you get Alzheimer's, you go through four stages. You go through a pre-symptomatic phase. You go through subjective cognitive impairment that lasts on average 10 years. These areas, pretty much 100% effective we can prevent, we can reverse virtually every time people are an SCI. 
MCI is the next. It's too bad. It's called mild cognitive impairment. It's like telling someone they have mildly metastatic cancer. It's a relatively late stage of Alzheimer's disease. We still in our trial had 84% of those people improve. Then the final stage is dementia. And we still see some people with proven dementia, but as uh, the farther you go, the harder it is and the tougher it is to get them all the way back. So we encourage everyone, please come in early. What stage do you think Biden's in? Uh, <laughs> that's a quite a loaded question. <laughs> let, let me let me suggest that that brings up a really critical question, which is, should we have a law when we, we already tell people you have to be at least 35 oh, to sure, run yeah. to the yeah. United States? You can't be 25. Right. So should there be? Why is there no upper limit? So I would propose I would propose an upper limit of 75, 35 to 75. Not to say that there aren't a lot of smart 80-year-olds and even 90-year-olds and some 100-year-olds. The other option is do testing and make mm-hmm. sure that someone's sharp at 80, whatever it is. So they had, for the first they had time, Trump, take, Trump, take, Trump took time to test, but Biden didn't. <laughs> yeah, well, so we have, you know, we'll have likely next November, uh, we will have the two oldest candidates ever. And whether one, one will be over 80 already. The other one will become 80 while he's president if he gets elected. So I do think that's something that has to be taken into account by all. And maybe you're, you know, you're right. Maybe the best way is just do appropriate testing before the person uh, well, runs. In my mind, is somewhat discriminatory unless you do that yeah. approach because it you could. Be, I mean, literally, you could be more uh, fit mentally uh, by two to three hundred percent than someone younger because it really depends on, on what you've been doing and you know yeah. integrating the, all these recommendations and if you're doing them yeah. there's nothing wrong then there's no you just have to arbitrarily because of an age because that's the age that most people are doing these things that and, and invariably come down with neurodegenerative challenges yeah yeah it's a I, I think this is a political issue and a biological and medical issue are going to be speaking at a dental event in Orlando, my part of the, the world, yep. uh, in September. Yeah, looking forward to it. Collaborative yeah. tours. Yeah, and I think that, you know, you know this very well. Um, the, the dentists have done a fantastic job with looking at oral systemic specialists to say, look, this is related to your mercury level. This is related to your oral microbiome, which affects cancer, which affects inflammation, which affects cognition, which affects atherosclerosis. It's incredible how important this is. Uh, and there are, you know, again, there are toxicity issues and there are also airway issues. One of the most common is poor support so that now people are going to sleep. They've got more uh, sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea. These all are critical things that should be dealt with. And we need more interaction between people who are interested in cognition and, and, and neurodegeneration and even internal medicine and those who are interested in oral health. Do you ever recommend using uh, paper tape over your mouth at night? So to make sure that you're only breathing through your nose and not breathe through your mouth? Only for those who have no trouble breathing through their nose. For those people, I have no problem. But for many people, they don't breathe well through their nose. And so taping their mouth shut is a real problem. Make it worse. Make it worse. Exactly. So I think it's critical to find out that you can actually measure airway size and it's critical to have a sleep study. Look, wearables, as you know, wearables are going to change the world. We, we can look at so many things now. We can look at our HRV and we can look at our blood pressure and we can look at our 
our, our various sleep uh, phases. And they're objective. They're objective. Yeah. So, so I think these are going to be fantastic and that they'll tell you. So I think it's important to track and I'm sure you track your oxygenation while you're sleeping. There's a beautiful paper from a couple of years ago showing just looking at the average SpO2 uh, at night correlates beautifully with the average size of your hippocampus and other nuclei in the brain. So your oxygen's going down at night. Okay. Then your, you know, your brain size is going down. So that's critical to get that up. Unless you're doing it intentionally, actually, because one of the, one of my practices for biohacking is I have an apparatus that allows that essentially replicates different altitudes, and it's done through a mask, so I can do uh, partial presses of oxygen is low below ten percent if I wanted to, but I usually hang out around thirteen and a half, fourteen percent. But I'm going to set it up so I could sleep at night with this mask on, and probably uh-huh. go down really slowly, like maybe. Instead of twenty percent oxygen, maybe nineteen percent or eighteen five, because there's so much good literature that those who live at altitude, uh, over time, they they do so much better, and it appears to be to increase CO two concentrations. That is really interesting. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how you balance it because you don't want to go too low for right, right. You do not want to go too low, right? But but has to be done slowly. A lot of people like to cycle. Now, do you cycle normally? That's another thing, of course. Oh yeah, yeah. Live O two, which have done that nicely. Yeah, this is a little more precise. It's 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 a medical grade unit where LIVO2 is just a you know run of the bill concentrator. And after yeah. a few hundred hours, those regular concentrators, they start producing toxins like aluminum and things. It's a real problem. So this is medical grade. And uh yeah, I I go down to four thirteen and a half percent for like five minutes, and it goes up to thirty-four percent oxygen for a minute, and you just cycle in and out, and I get my PO2 down to like high 70s. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's a cycle. It goes in and out and, yeah. you know, you yeah. can stimulate HIP1 alpha and you get know, all these great benefits, but I, I want to also do this, the nighttime sleeping to stimulate altitude training. Interesting. So let me also ask you, you, you and I had a discussion several years ago about how important ketones are. And mm-hmm. certainly uh, the work from Professor Stephen Kinane shows, you know, just giving exogenous ketones to people with MCI does improve their cognition. It's part of energetics. But as you pointed out, you want to cycle out of this. And you, I think you told me at the time you like to you at that time you were recommending twice per week to cycle out. What's your current thinking about this? I know you're now you're now more of a fujivore. So you yeah. may be I totally evolved out of that. And I really I, I you know, many, many people, you know anecdotally, probably got hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people that you know personally that benefit from this approach. But I think it's problematic and there's there's actually a study published last month. No, this is dead. Last month, it was in May of 2023, that looked at, I think it was, it wasn't prospective. I think it was an epidemiological, so it was correlation, it wasn't causation, but they looked at low carb, high fat, high fat, low carb, and they impacted mortality rates. And I, I had shifted before I saw this study, but it was it was confirmational or bias, you know, so that I found it. But the low carb, high fat had an increased mortality rate of 30%. And the high carb, low fat had a decreased mortality at 30%. So I, I'm just concerned about this. And here, here's one of the things, it's really what catalyzed it. And I didn't understand this. And perhaps you do or don't, I don't know, but I didn't, I, I was clueless. And I'm sure you've seen it, you know, after the first few days of going on a fast or low carb, I mean, you'll improve your glucose drops. Yeah. Everything is better. But yeah. then after a few days, usually after your glycogen stores run out, 
your glucose comes back up and you're eating no glucose, none, zero carbs. So where does the glucose come from? It comes from cortisol. So you're raising cortisol levels. That cortisol, how does it raise your glucose? And it's a, you know, it's a gluconeogenic hormone. It raises glucose. That's its primary function. Yeah. And and it, it does this by stripping your brain, your bones, and your muscles of amino muscle, a protein, amino acids. It shreds them. They're gone. And it increases inflammation. So, you know, and it's is it great to have this? Absolutely. You'd be dead without it. Thank God this system exists. But if you do it continuously, you are asking for trouble. And I think that's what contributed to that observation that they found in that study. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's really problematic. So I, I, I don't recommend it at all now, personally, although some, you know, you got it, it, everyone has to make that choice and decision for themselves for sure. But personally, I wouldn't do it. Um, and in fact, what's improved my sleep dramatically uh, is I take like a teaspoon of honey and a teaspoon of gelatin before I go to bed. <laughs> my deep sleep has improved pretty significantly. Very interesting. All right. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, so, clearly- you know, well-digested food, not you're not eating a burger or something that you have to, you know, that, that pretty much breaks down the amino acids and the, and the sugar quickly. Very interesting. I mean, the, the problem we run into with people with cognitive decline they have lost both. So they're no longer burning glucose appropriately. They've got insulin resistance. They've lost their ability to make and utilize ketones because their insulin is high. So they got nothing. And unfortunately, yeah, they are absolutely. low in their energetics. So we need to restore both of those. And you've kind of done it in a very different way than we have. But the key is to restore both. The yeah, you, you need to be metabolically flexible, for sure. Exactly. Yeah, you've got to be able to have that capacity to seamlessly switch between burning fat, which you need. You definitely need it. Like, like when I was when I do uh, my katsu blood flow restriction training, yeah. that I have to. Sw- I go anaerobic, and and the glycogen is gone. You got to be able to switch to fats, but you don't want to do that continuously for like long periods of time. You want to do it for short periods of time. So cycling, I think, is the key. Cycling in and out, you know, where you're not doing it for long term. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, this is, you know, life is so, I mean, we both got into this because we love helping people. I'm, I'm confident of that. But the other part of this is it's just like a big puzzle. If you're truly committed to, as I believe you are truly committed to helping people and, and looking at the truth, not being persuaded or influenced by corporate interest and following this path and being afraid to say the truth because of losing your job or your hospital privileges. So, you know, when you're, when you have that, it, it, life is such a joy, you know, because it's, it's just this journey to discover the truth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, best outcomes, that's the key. And, you know, getting emails and getting notes and things that say, look, this oh, person yeah. was yeah. had no hope and is That's now doing very well. There's nothing better than that. Yeah, because you're, you're such a anomaly in the world of dementia treatment. There's virtually no one or group that is holding the hope that you have. I mean, th- before you arrived, this was irreversible. And right. the only solution was to take some drug, which is going to make you worse. worse. Exactly. Yeah, it's been really sad to see, as you know, the, the antibodies have been associated with more brain atrophy. The uh, the the standard cholinergic, uh, you know, cholinergic approach has been, unfortunately, you know, using things like Aricept and Nemenda has been uh, associated, both Aricept and Nemenda have been associated 
with a poorer outcome just five years down the road. So you're right, it's been a really tough situation. And of course, with the antibodies that are getting approved, uh, there's more brain hemorrhage, uh, there's more brain swelling, there have been multiple deaths, um, they are astronomically expensive. Uh, it's just an absolute mess. So, so I think we need to do better. Yeah, and you thank and kudos to you for for moving the field in that direction. How how have your colleagues responded to your approach? I you get a lot of criticisms. Uh, is there conflicts? Have you lost friends? Oh yeah, no, I've lost a lot of friends. They, they many of my old colleagues will literally will not talk to me because they're holding on to this hope that it's going to be we're going to get a drug, we're going to get a drug. It's one, it's, you know, one drug is going to do it. And I think, you know, I hope I hope one drug does it. That would be great. <laughs> you know, we both know it's not going to happen. There's just just like a drug to treat obesity. It's not going to happen. Well, I okay, think the fact that this is a it. network. That's the key. This yeah. is a network. You got to address all the different pieces. Yeah. And of course, as you mentioned, metabolism is a huge issue. Oh, it's a huge. It's the biggest part of the puzzle, I think, for almost every disease. Yeah. Once, once you uh, crack that nut in a kernel. Like everything flows, and the rest of it's just fine tuning and support and synergistic support that you're you're doing in your in your your protocol is you know all these little pillars you've got. You address one of them, they all add up, add up, and they build a strong synergy that's you know produces pretty dramatic results. Absolutely. Yeah. One last one. What's what's your take on stem cells? So uh, you know the, the you know we've got the remove the problem that's causing the degeneration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it has a lot of potential things, but ultimately we got to rebuild the synapses. So what is your take on stem cell approaches for that, for that third piece? I'm not, not in favor of most stem cells, uh, but the, the concept I'm in favor of, there's a guy in your neck of the woods, uh, Todd Ovikaitis. I'm not sure if you've encountered him. But sure. yeah. Oh, yeah, I know, I know Todd. Okay, yeah. So I'm a favor of Todd's approach. And once you learn of Todd's work, it, it, it just, it's, it's almost a joke, every other type of stem cell uh, approach. I would never do it. You know, I mean, I would only do Todd's. And I think I, I actually I'm one of Todd's licensed stem cells. I don't treat other people, but I treat myself and friends. Wow. That. So yeah, I've got I've got one. I've got one of the units in my house. So I'm a big believer of that. It's something like for those who are not familiar with it, it's something like PRP, plasma rich platelets, plasma, plasma rich platelets. Yeah. Plasma rich plasma. Sorry. Uh, and essentially spin the blood down. It's your own blood. It's not taking yeah. stem cells from somebody else. Your stem cells, these are like these, right. these primitive sleeping stem cells. And his process extracts them in a centrifuge and he's inject them back in your body after they've been activated with a laser. So waking them up. So I like that a lot. And, I've, you know, he's got some pretty darn good results. So interesting. Yeah. Well, so, we're all interested in the same thing. Best outcomes. How do absolutely, we, you know, we absolutely. To get the best outcomes? We've had people go from MOCA scores of 18 to 30, which is fantastic from demented to normal. We've had people go from zero to nine. We've never seen anyone yet to be able to go from zero MOCA, which is end stage Alzheimer's, to perfect 30. I look forward to that someday when we understand what's, this. What's the best you've seen? What's, what's the best you've seen? Uh, eight, 18 to 30. So people go- So once 18, you're below 18, it's, it's real Well, but we've seen people go from 16 to 25 and do absolutely great. Um, okay. We've seen people go from, you know, 15 to 27 even and do absolutely okay. great. That's pretty um, good. So what's, so once, what's the, what's the threshold of, if you're like below 10, it's kind of hard to reverse it. Cause so it's everybody like cancer. Once cancer is too far gone, you can't, you can't reverse it. It's just gone. So, so here's the thing. This is what's really interesting. A guy wrote, 
wrote me a nasty note a couple of years ago and he said, how dare you tell people that if they're too far along, they shouldn't get on this protocol. He said, my wife had a MOCA score of zero. Um, she's in a nursing home. We use the protocol that you developed. She, you know, she, she only went up a little bit, but, she, but her symptoms were that so much better. Yeah. She could dress so, herself. She could speak again. She could engage. Good point. So good point. I don't say there's anything, but it is much harder below 16. Okay. We so 16 is again and again and again, it's harder below 16. So you're probably not going to get amazing improvement, but you could get partial improvement, which would be pretty significant for you the can get some dramatic subjective improvements. Yeah. And, and again, we've seen people like 15 to 27. So it does happen. It's just that, you know, just like with cancer, it is harder and harder and harder the longer you wait, which is why we encourage everyone. Look, if everybody would come in in those first two phases, prevention or SCI, dementia would be a rare problem. Yeah. So, um, yeah, kudos to you for putting this together and, you know, really addressing the foundational uh, disturbances that the body's experiencing. And, and by addressing the cause causes, typically, you can activate the body's recovery and repair mechanisms, which are there. Our body wants to be healthy. A lot of doctors don't get this. It just strives to be healthy. You just got to remove the impairments to that. And you're doing exactly. a great job with respect to neurodegenerative disease. So congratulations. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Keep up the good work. Stay safe and well. All right. You too.